You know, I, uh, I feel bad for a particular megachurch pastor. I don't usually feel bad for megachurch pastors, but I feel, I feel bad for this one particular guy. I won't mention him by name, just you know, doesn't need any more attention than it's already been getting, but uh, a couple months back, um, he got up in front of his congregation, a large congregation in Texas, and he essentially confessed that he had been um, engaged in, in a texting relationship with a woman, not his wife. Uh, it, was, it was a very odd situation because he didn't think that, that he had been doing anything wrong or incorrect or sinful. Somebody pointed it out to him, a friend of the woman's, and, and so he took it to the elders, and the elders said, well, let's, let's look at it. And they brought a legal team in, and the legal team said, hand over your phone. And so he handed over his phone, and they went through all of his texts with a fine-tooth comb, and at the end they said, you know what, you texted this woman too many times for somebody that's not your wife, and some of the joking was a little, you know, not, not great, and so uh, though it wasn't sexual, and wasn't romantic, we think you should step down temporarily, and graciously and rightfully, so he, he stepped down, and I want you to think about that for, for just a moment. We live in a day and age where the first moment we think a thing is followed by the next moment in which we are texting the thing that came to our mind. Just to a friend or whomever, somebody we think we can trust, and we just say something. And if you're like me, you probably say something really stupid, because I have a lot of stupid things coming to my, my mind, and more, more than one of them have made it into a text. But we live in an age where you don't just think a thing, and then it just floats off, and nobody ever knows about it, but the Lord... Um, it's preserved. It floats away, where? Up into the cloud, yeah. And it hangs out there mysteriously waiting until that day when somebody says, hand over your phone, and they can go through. How many would want to have every text, every message, every, any communication that you'd ever typed or written exposed to, to a legal team? Anybody? <laughs> Yeah, I know that I wouldn't. I, and, and, you know, Paul says this. He says, look carefully then how you walk. I used to say circumspectly in the, in the old King James. You remember that word, circumspectly? Good word. But that's too big a word nowadays. So they say, look carefully. Look carefully, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And I think that just could be almost, yeah, that just could come out of modern uh, recommendations of the how to handle your texting conversations. You know, you should be not unwise. We should be wise. We should think about the fact that, that we're being observed at all times. As we are living circumspectly, that is, with our head on a swivel, to put it in military terms, the people around us are doing the same thing. But because we're Christians, they're looking at us in particular. And they're waiting to see where we're going to you know, make a misstep. That's just the fact. So live, here's the big idea today, live as though you're awaiting trial on charges for your faith. You're going to have to give an account of why you're such a crummy Christian, <laughs> right? I mean, that's kind of the idea, that you're going you're gonna to have to at some point answer for, for some perceived wrongdoing. And we want, every Christian lives for the sake of the kingdom of God. It's, it's our heart's desire. We want to see Christ glorified. We want to, we want to see the, the, the gospel adorned with all respect and praise. And so this, this matters, doesn't it? 
It matters what people think of us insofar as they may project that onto faith. Acts 24, Paul's facing a trial of sorts. I don't know, you know, in modern terms, whether this is a grand jury, you know, an arraignment. I, I thought about asking Colin ahead of time so he could give me this straight skinny on that. But anyway, it's some kind of initial uh, trial um, before the governor whose name is Felix. Felix. And we know a lot about Felix, believe it or not. Uh, not only does Luke who's a very good historian, give us information. But we have Roman historians like Josephus and Tacitus that talked about him. Strangely enough, he had been a slave. In his, in his young life, he had been a slave. He had been uh, released of his slavery from actually the mother of the emperor Claudius. And he was in good with people in Rome. He had connections. Eventually, he ended up as kind of an important uh, uh, politician in Samaria. And then in 52 A.D., he was placed in charge of all of Judea. He was the Roman governor of Judea. So now you know two Roman governors of Judea. What was the other guy's name? You remember him 25 years earlier than that? Pilate? Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Pontius Pilate. He was a Roman governor. So it's just 25 years. He's basically Pilate 25 years later. So um, he dealt badly with people. He was not a good governor, this this Felix guy. He he didn't really handle trouble well in that he, he... he was really violent in the way he would push down any kind of dissent. And so he was, the Jews did not like him at all. And this will be important as we understand, to understand as we look at what they say at the beginning here because they hated him. They hated his guts. This is what was written of by Tacitus. He says of Felix, he was a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. So that's the guy that Paul is going to go up before as he faces this trial. The Jews assemble before him. Ananias is there. You remember Ananias. He was the crooked high priest that had Paul slapped in the previous section. Uh, They bring with him a prosecutor named uh, Tertullus, or if you want to call him Tertullus, I'm not really sure which way. I, I thought, which way should I go, Tertullus or Tertullus? I'm, I'm, I don't know. But anyway, you know what his chief qualification is for this guy? He's a talker. They call him here in the text in the ESV a spokesman. It basically means somebody who's really good with words. He's really eloquent. He's the kind of person, you know, you've heard of a a good lawyer with a bad case kind of a thing. He's that kind of guy who can just talk his way uh, through everything. Even if he's wrong, he still sounds right. That's the guy. Listen to the, just, now I told you about Felix, and you're like, why are you going into this detail? Listen to how he addresses Felix, because Felix doesn't deserve any really good words coming from a Jew, but this is how he he says, and it says, and when he had summoned Tertullus, began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Is this guy good or what? Huh? All right, so the first, first thing here is we, we have accusers who are watching uncharitably. We have accusers who are watching uncharitably. This is the thing you realize, like with this thing with the pastor I was telling you about, the minute this came out, the minute this story broke, 
People came out of the woodwork on, on Twitter. That's mainly where I was tracking with it, you know, was on Twitter just to see what people would say and what stuff I could glean about the story. And people were just coming at him from every angle imaginable. People that had an axe to grind on this issue and people who had an axe and people who just hated Christianity. I mentioned it to a friend that's a Christian and, um, and probably not that much different. But, you know, I told him and, and he's like, oh, yeah, well, I don't really care. What? What do you mean you don't care? Well, I, you know, that guy said a couple things. You know, he brought out a couple things theologically that this guy had said a, a couple years ago that maybe weren't 100% in alignment with him. So he's like, I, I don't care. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. So in other words, he, he's getting it from every direction. People are, not, people are not charitably disposed toward you if you bear the name of Christ. This guy tears into Paul. Uh, and let me just summarize some of the things he says. Because uh, just for time's sake, but these are verses five to eight. If you're looking at your Bibles, hopefully you are. But the first thing he says is, "This guy's a plague." Colin, do you ever start that way, like in prosecuting somebody? This guy's COVID. Try that. I, I'm giving it to you freebie as a freebie. Just this guy's COVID. I don't think they really appreciate. I think a judge might actually say something too if you started out that way, just just slamming the guy with a yeah. But I mean, he's saying Paul is worthless. Paul is rotten. We should think of him like an infectious disease. And he accuses him of stirring up riots, which, uh, as you know, Romans did not cotton to that at all. That was a bad thing. Like that was maybe the worst thing you could do in Rome is cause public turmoil. That was. No bueno, that was no good. You did not do that. And so that, that, he's just throwing raw meat when he says that. And then he calls him a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. A ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And that's not really a charge so much as it's more of an insinuation. It's another chance for him to kind of just kind of some body blows against Paul. Um, it, it, did, it wasn't a a real charge, ex except that it sort of implied that Paul was outside of the mainstream of what Roman, Roman culture tolerated. Like, you could be a Jew and be a good Roman, sort of. <laughs> Maybe you couldn't, but at least the Romans allowed for that. It's like, yeah, Judaism was an accepted religion as long as they didn't step out of their lane too much. But this Christianity thing, this is like a sect. He's a ringleader. What does that suggest to you? What do you hear when you hear the ringleader, sect, right? What? Mob boss, yeah. Charles Manson, this guy's bad news. And then he says in verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Now I want you to, remembering the truth of the matter, think about what, this is, this is straining the truth to the point of being just an outright lie. So he says, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. So, uh, yeah, what, what really happened is that Paul hadn't profaned it at all in any way, shape, or form. They happened to see him at the temple, put two and two together, got five, and then rather than arresting him, they, they grabbed a hold of him and they were beating him to death. So that's as far as the truth went. Now, obviously, in any trial, you don't expect the prosecution to play fair, necessary, well, fair, within reason, right? But he's not there to build up the defense, the DA might as well not bring the case if he thinks the guy's innocent, if he's going to say nice things. No, I mean, he's, that's his job. So when we look at, you know, Tertullus or Tertullus, either way, you know, 
We understand that's what he got paid for. He was good with words. He was hired to take Paul down, to just take him down to Chinatown. Um, So that was his job. The world around us, the world around us, the atheists, anti-Christian mob, whoever you want to make them out to be, they're really not looking at you with favorable eyes. They don't see any need to be fair toward you. You bear the name of Christ, and they are watching and waiting for you to slip up. They are looking for the opportunity to absolutely nail you. And uh, I don't say that so that you'll have an overinflated view of yourself. or, or our, I mean, it's, it's not that we're that important that, that we would draw ire like this. And it's not even that, you know, we don't want to be paranoid. We don't want to be anxious. We don't want to live in fear. But what we ought to be realizing is that people are watching us. And they're looking for that opportunity to take us down. But, but not so they can hurt us, really but they're doing it so that they can hurt the cause of the gospel. They're hurting it so that they can, hurting you to to, to put a black eye on Christianity itself and on the gospel and on faith. And so that's just something we have to, we're not saying go out and live like hypocrites, but we are called to be wise. We are called to live circumspectly. And so understand that. Understand that's that's the way the world's looking at you. Secondly, we need to be able to plead innocent. We need to be able to plead innocent. We should live lives, Jesus says, as innocent as doves. I don't know doves personally. Um, I know some of you hunt doves. If they're that innocent, why are you shooting them? I don't know. But um, I've never seen a dove attack anyone. So that's, you know, innocent as doves, wise as serpents. Peter tells the early church that if we suffer for doing good, then that's a good thing that we're identified with Christ. He says, but don't suffer for doing evil things. It's a whole different thing if you're actually guilty. If you're actually guilty of murder or meddling or whatever the case might be, then that's a bad thing. So Felix here motions for Paul to speak after the accusations have been made, and this is what it says, verse 10. And when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over the nation, I cheerfully make my defense. So what do you think about Paul's way of approaching Felix versus Tertullus's way? Is Paul really building them up? Is he blowing a lot of smoke here? he's not being rude. He's not trying to undercut himself completely. But on the other hand, there's, there's no effusive praise in that. More or less what he's saying is, is I know you've been here for a while. <laughs> I know you're kind of familiar enough that you can kind of make some judgment, and so I'm happy to defend myself uh, before you. That's what Paul sees his, his role right now. You know, he's not... <laughs> This, this, is, this is for him to defend himself against the charges that have been made against him. The word here is the same word from which we get the word apologetics, the defense, apologia in, in Greek. Here's the thing with legal defenses. It really helps if you're innocent, right? Is it a guarantee? Uh, no, you can be innocent and still go to jail. But it really, really helps you. If you're trying to defend yourself against scurrilous charges, it really helps to be innocent. 
Paul mounts a robust defense. Verse 11, he admits that he was in Jerusalem. Like, yeah, I was in Jerusalem. Never, that's not in question. I've only been there 12 days. Hardly enough time to really have caused any great, great commotion. But he wasn't there to stir up trouble or cause any dispute. And we know that's true. Paul wanted to be in Jerusalem just to do the things that the other Jewish people were doing, which was to take part in the celebration. This was the Feast of Pentecost. He was there just as a good Jew to celebrate that. On the one hand, we know the other backstory, the other part of that is he's bringing an offering to Jerusalem. We know that James asked him to go up to the temple and pay for the vow that those four men had made. But what he was doing in form looked like what every other Jew in, that, in Jerusalem was doing. Didn't look any different. There was no way in which he was somehow, you know, cutting new territory or anything. Of the, they, he just blended in with everything else that was going on around him. It was mundane. There was no fault there. There was nothing off. No one found him starting fights, verbal or otherwise. He says in verse 13, neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. What is he saying there? <laughs> I think what he's saying is, you got a good talker there. Old Tertullus there, um, good talker, but where's the evidence? Where's the beef? What's going on? Like, like, do they have any? Where's their list of witnesses that they're going to call? Who, 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 what, what evidence are they bringing? The answer's none. They don't have any evidence. I'm going to leapfrog a, a few verses, jump to 16 through 21 real quickly because that kind of resumes his defense. Uh, but he says there basically that he came to Jerusalem on a goodwill mission. He came there with that offering that we've talked about. This is the first time Luke mentions it, but Paul has mentioned it before in his letters. And so the, he, it's kind of like be sure that no good deed goes unpunished. Paul's defense is, hey, what was I here to do except bring, bring money to take care of poor people in Jerusalem. Those poor people were Christians in the church, but yet they were Jewish Christians, and that's why he was, uh, why he was there. And then to go through the vow with those four men to pay for their vow. Paul's innocent. Here's the, here's the high point and sort of the period at the end of the sentence for Paul. This is his, his best argument. He says, but some Jews from Asia... They ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Now, are you confused as to why I say that's the apex of his argument? Let me tell you why this is the strongest part of his argument. Under Roman law, and it's kind of like the, the commandment that you shall not bear false witness and the protections against bearing false witness under the Old Testament law, if you made a charge against someone, you better have the goods. Like, you can't just go swatting someone. You know what swatting is, right? Where you call and say, hey, I think my neighbor's murdering his wife, and then the SWAT team shows up and kills him and all. You know, that sort of thing. You, you, that's a bad thing. Right? We agree, right, that that's bad when you do that? Yes, it's okay, good, good. Just be sure. Okay, so under Roman law, if you swatted Paul and said, hey, oh, that guy, you know, and he deserved to be beaten within an inch, inch of his life or just killed, um, you better have the goods. You better show up in court and say, here's the proof. There was actually a law, it was called destitutio, destitutio in the Latin, and it, it basically meant if you made a charge and you didn't show up, you yourself would be penalized under Roman law. So that's what Paul is saying. He's like, hey, where are they? 
Where are my accusers? Where are the people who said they saw me, you know, doing anything that was untoward? Paul is innocent. The charges are baseless. If it weren't for the political background of this, he would have just been probably dismissed. The, the, the charges couldn't have stood. And we should strive for the same thing. We should strive for that same level of innocence. The world around us is looking to pick our bones clean at any given moment. If you step out of line, if, and, and I don't just mean as a Christian for, for doing good, but if, if, if you mess up, then, yeah, it, it's, you're going to hear about it. Paul says to the Philippians, it's a different passage, I mean, it's a different passage, a different context, but he says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, so that's like not even a hint, right? Without a blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So here's, that's the goal. The goal is to be innocent of, of anything that they would bring against us and to live our lives in a contrast to the world around us. Enough so to where they would look at us and go, wow, there is something different about them. But if the world looks as they are, and they see in us moments of anger, outbursts of anger, flirtatious behavior, gossip, greed, dishonesty, pride, vanity, unsportsmanlike conduct. I know that's not listed anywhere in the scripture, but that's a case of a loss of self-control. Unkindness, a lack of gentleness, a lack of compassion, a lack of love. If the world sees those things and they catch it and they are focused on you at the moment they see that, they're going to remember it. And if they get a chance, they're going to put it out on Twitter or Facebook or to whomever else because their goal is, is, is to bring down the cause of the gospel. You're like, well, do I have to be perfect? Well, that's the goal, obviously. Jesus calls us to that, to, to be as his heavenly father, to be perfect as his heavenly father. We know we don't attain that. The only thing you could do, I think, is what that guy did that got caught, that, that pastor I talked about. He at least admitted it. He owned it. He said, yeah, I, I screwed up. I, I did the wrong thing. That's the best we can do is when we do mess up is own it and then, and then go from there. The world is watching, so we do not want to give them ammunition. All right. Thirdly, we need to be able to profess our faith. So Jesus, we know this, right? Jesus challenges his disciples. He says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And that same word that gets translated acknowledge there in Matthew is in our passage. Uh, in our passage in verse 14, uh, but this, this is Paul speaking, but this I confess, there's the word, right? Confess, acknowledge to you that according to the way, which is shorthand for Christianity, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. So Paul is fighting for his life here, but Paul will still make a clear, bold profession, confession of his faith. He tells Felix, Felix in essence, you know, I'm innocent of this stuff that they're saying, but yeah, I'm a follower of the way, the truth, the life, who is Jesus Christ. Yes, I am a follower of Christ. They call it a sect. The truth of the matter is it is in accord with the entire Old Testament prophetic ideas and concepts that it, that it was all pointing toward. That's what I believe, Felix, 
is in the Christ who's been prophesied in the Old Testament. More than that, he says, you know, and, and, and the trouble I got into really was when I was before the council and, and I stood up for the resurrection. He says in verse 21, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So he's like, yeah, sue me. I believe in what the Jews believe in. They believe in a resurrection. Well, the Sadducees don't. But most good Jews, the Pharisees, they understand that there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous and that there will be a judgment at that time. Paul says, that's all I'm guilty of. Paul is able to defend himself, but in defending himself, which is one one half of the battle, he's also able to confess Christ. He's able to confess his faith. Do you see that? See where I'm going with that? It's not just a matter of defending yourself. Within that, we want to confess our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you wish you had the skills Paul had? Paul was eloquent. We were talking in our ABF class today about how he was able to go Greek, and then he could go Hebrew, and he could do it. was like just an amazing guy. How many would love to have the skills so that you could, you know, defend yourself and confess faith in Christ with the kind of words that Paul was able to bring to the table? Anyone? Yeah, you're all with me? We'd all like to be Paul. Here's, here's, here's what I'd like to say, say to you, and, and that is we don't have to be as skilled as Paul to do either one of those things. If we are living as we are, as we are taught to live, as we, if we are living holy and blameless in the midst of a crooked generation and our, lights are sh- and our lives are shining like lights, then you, know, you don't have to be super intellectual for that, do you? And when it comes to confessing faith in Christ, confessing faith in Christ is just confessing faith in Christ. It's not a matter of, of intellectually being able to prove it. You, you can confess faith in Christ and people around you can mock you and, and, and argue against it all day long and they may be smarter and better and, 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 and whatever else, but they can't stop you from confessing. That's not about your, your head so much as it's coming from your heart. It's not about your proficiency. It's about your profession. Amen? I picked up this story from uh, uh, the Gospel Coalition. There was a story on there about a lawyer by the name of Mark uh, Capisano. He was on a flight from London to New York. He was with his legal firm, and he was just a, a low echelon lawyer for this company, and he was sitting with some big wigs, some senior partners in the, in the law firm, and they're flying, and uh, the food comes, and he, he's a Christian, so uh, in this moment, he bowed his head to pray for his food, and uh, all at once, he's about mid-sentence, you know, as he's quietly praying, and he hears somebody say, hey, you're not one of those Christians, are you? And he looks over, and it's one of the heads of the law firm there asking him this question. And, and being a lawyer and being really, really good with words, he went, um, yes, I am. Brilliant. Aren't those, how did he come up with those words? Yes, I am. What I'm saying to you, He's a lawyer. All he could say was, yes, I am. That was his confession. And the other guy says, good, I am too. Why don't you pray for our food? And wouldn't that be nice if every time that you had to make a confession for your faith, that it was always surrounded by somebody that was going to out themselves as a secret Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. Well, so am I. So am I. Good, way to go. Will it always work out that way in the scheme of life? 
No, we probably shouldn't even wish for that. We probably shouldn't even wish. What good is it if we're only professing our faith around people that end up being Christians? Isn't it so much better if, if like Paul, we're able in a hostile audience to say, yeah, I'm a follower of the way. Yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And when you do that, you may find out that you're no longer part of the club. You may be unfriended. Can you bear it? Anybody here ever been unfriended? Yeah? Every, were you ever unfriended for your faith, or were you just being obnoxious and people didn't like you anymore? Yeah, right? <laughs> you, may be, you may be kicked off the, the team or whatever else. You may not end up marrying that person that you thought was just a perfect, you know, perfect marriage material because once you out your faith, they don't want to have anything to do with it. The culture around us is not always going to be sympathetic, but the Christian, we're on, we're on trial. We have to be able to confess our faith in Christ, and you don't have to be gifted in speech. Maybe you just... You just have to be able to, to stand up and say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. What's the sum of this whole thing today? I think I would be tempted to almost put it in the words of John Wesley. John Wesley is credited as saying this. I don't know if it's really true or accurate, but you've often heard this expression that we should be able and ready to preach, to pray, or to die at any moment. How many have heard that before? Okay, that's supposedly Wesley said it. I don't know, but it's good, right? And when we say preach, let me just take some pressure off of you. That doesn't mean you have to be able to come up here and deliver a full sermon at any given moment on any given day. Hey, we need you. It's the 10 seconds to go. Pastor Jay just dropped over dead. Uh, you, you get up here. It's not what it's saying, right? But I think preaching, the, the idea that, that we can give a confession of faith. The world is watching, and we need to be ready we probably underestimate the extent to which the world is watching us. You know, one day you're the pastor of some big, huge mega church, and you've already got the next bestseller on your laptop ready for some finishing touches. It'll be your 10th at this point, and, uh, and all at once, you know, you're, you're hated by the world around you. Live as though you're awaiting trial on charges for your faith. The world is looking. They are watching and they are watching uncharitably. So be careful, Christian. I'm not saying be a hypocrite, but I'm saying live wisely, understand, live as lights, be innocent as doves. If you're not, don't expect to be able to cover up and be willing to at least own up. If you're caught, you know, if you blow it, if, 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 you, you know, if, if, if you shake your fingers at someone in traffic and someone sees you, well, you're going to have to own that, right? You have to say, I'm sorry, I, I, that was sin, I, I blew it. But, but, but live as light, be innocent as doves, be ready to defend your faith and be ready to confess it ready to confess it. Okay, dear one, if, if as Paul said um, here, there, there will be a, a final judgment. There will be a day. If you, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, this truth has been um, true. It's been true forever. It, it was Even before there was this way, before Christ had come and given his life, uh, the Jewish people knew this truth to be true, and that is that there will be a day, a final day, when there will be judgment, when the dead will be raised, the, the just and the unjust, and they will stand before God.
And the truth of the matter is that as you are, you will not pass that test. You will not be able to stand in judgment before a holy God. God is like a consuming fire. Our righteousness, each of us, the Bible says, is like filthy rags before a holy God. So on that day, if you come with nothing but your own works, you will perish. You will perish. You, you will be cast off into the lake of fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. And that's the words of Jesus I'm quoting there. But if you are in union with Jesus Christ, if you, if you have him, if you have been justified, like we talked about today, through his body and his blood, through what he did on the cross, you will have eternal life. You will pass through that judgment, not because of righteous things you've done, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and because of his righteousness accounted to you. Doesn't that sound good? I mean, if you're gonna be on trial... <laughs> I'd rather be on trial with the world around looking at me than to stand before the eyes of a holy God and give an account of my life before him with nothing but my own righteousness. I'd much, ra I'd much rather be in the other position, wouldn't you? Let's pray for you. Father, we do pray for anyone here today that might not know Christ, and we pray that, that the gospel of your son might fall upon a receptive mind and heart, that you would open each person here to that truth. For those who know you, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us and remind us that every word that we whisper could be shouted from the rooftop tomorrow and help us to live wisely, therefore, to live with our head on a swivel, knowing that the world is watching us, Lord. We want to live holy and blameless, innocent lives before you and help us to do that. Help us to own our own uh, sin when it happens, that, that, that we would confess it, that we would be humble before you and before men. And uh, Lord, that in, the, in every way possible, we might confess our faith and make a good stand and a good testimony for the gospel. We desire it, Lord. We want it so much. And we pray that you would enable that in Jesus' name.